0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and it's my pleasure to welcome the Honorable Martin Clark back to the program today. Martin is a recently retired circuit court judge from the Commonwealth of Virginia and a respected writer of legal fiction. His previous novels are The Many Aspects of Mobile Home Living, Plain Heathen Mischief, The Legal Limit, and The Jezebel Remedy. Today we'll be talking about his latest book, The Substitution Order, which is published by Knopf. Now, Martin, the book opens up in a sandwich shop called Substitution. Did that pun come to you prior to the plot, or was that just a really unlucky happening after?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you stumped me right off the bat, as always. And, and thanks for having me back on, on your show, and it's it's nice to be here. I always do my plots from Alpha to Omega before I start writing, so that trick was already on the table in the computer before I started. It wasn't a happy coincidence.
0: It is kind of a nice way to tie in – That there's a major order at the the sub shop, and then you have a substitution order plays a big role later on. What is a substitution order? A, A substitution order, legally speaking, the
1: restaurant part seems pretty straightforward, so I won't touch on that. But at law, a substitution order is simply a court order that substitutes counsel. In our world, and I think people would be surprised to learn this, in the legal world, much of what we do, even in this day and time, is still done on a handshake still done informally and still done without a lot of procedural safeguards in place. And a substitution order is basically a court order entered by a judge in which lawyers simply substitute into a legal case. If Stephen is the lawyer, he leaves, Martin becomes the lawyer, you and I sign that order, the judge signs it, and then you have new counsel of record. There is no formality to that. It's not notarized. It's not in any way certified. Simply I sign it, you sign it, and the judge signs it, and it becomes a court order. It's one of those orders, and there's really no reason for mischief to be involved. And, of course, that's part of the book how a substitution order opens the door to some pretty significant mischief.
0: When did it strike you that this is way too easily exploitable?
1: There are a lot of things in the court system that are too easily manipulated. And a part of that is because we in the court system have to be open and accessible. It's a head-scratcher to me, and, and, and this played a role in my last book. And one of my clerks said, please don't announce that again and again, and please don't <laughs> write it again and again. I don't know about other states, but certainly in, in our state, in Virginia, I can walk into the clerk's office today And I can use the indexing system, and I can locate a file, your file. And many original documents are right there, and there's no one watching me. I'm reminded of who was it in – there was a someone, I I, I think, from one of the administrations went into the National Archives and pocketed something and walked out with it one day. But you could do that. It's pretty simple. You walk into the clerk's office, open the file up, take out an original agreement, a letter, a document. Ultimately, you'd probably get called, and it, it wouldn't work. But there's a ton of accessibility because we have to be transparent and open.
0: But the book does open up with a man named Kevin Moore. He's the manager of a sub shop, Substitution, and he has a customer who wants to illegally pay for her sub sandwich.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. It's an interesting start to the book for me in terms of how I write. And I don't know how much of the promotional stuff you read.
0: I didn't read it until today and saw your reference to me in the Q&A section. Oh, yeah. So...
1: (laughs) So this book was very different for me. I don't know how long ago it was. It'd have to be a pretty good while, given the fact that Larry Brown's been
0: deceased for several years. 2004 when we first talked, so it was probably after that.
1: But basically, in terms of the writing of this book, you and I did an interview, and you discovered that the late Larry Brown's my favorite writer. And you sent me a disc, and it was an interview that you had done with Larry Brown. And it was probably one of the last interviews that Larry did. And it was really interesting because you ask him not about a particular book, but you talk to him about how he, Larry Brown, wrote. And he said, I'll never forget listening to this. I was fishing. I was fly fishing on Dobbins Road in Patrick County. And I put this in and started listening to it and listened to the whole interview, sat there with my fly rod. (laughs) I never got out (laughs) of the truck just sitting there and listened to this entire interview. And Larry said, I try to create interesting people and likable people and, quote, load them up with problems and watch them work through it. And that was different for me. My books have always been very plot heavy, and you just sort of hang the characters on the plot. So I started this book by trying to develop a character, Kevin Moore, and I wasn't great at it because it's new for me. It's also written in the first person, so it started with about 25 or 30 pages, and my editor is saying, way too long. We love character development, but not quite this much. So one of the things that I did was put Kevin in the situation where he's approached by someone who wants to do something illegal and frustrating for him. And that scene carries, I think, a lot of water for me. It tells you about Kevin. It tells you about his circumstances. It tells you about how unfair it is to him, also to Blaine, who works with him. And it's compacted, I hope, into about three or four paragraphs or at least a page or two To tell you about Kevin and develop his character. And that little scene, as I say, I hope that shows a lot about the person he is. It tells you about his gumption, his perspective on the world.
0: It's a young woman. She wants to buy a sub sandwich with an EBT card.
1: Yeah, which we see all the time. There's more to the story than that. What she really wants to do is she wants to buy the sandwich. She has no money. But the trick is... She said, I think, I can't remember, how much was the bill? I think the bill, dollars or something. Something like that. And she says, well, there's almost 25 left on the card. I'll give you the card. You pay for the sandwich, and you can keep the card and get the difference. And if you're as desperate as Kevin, if you're in bad circumstances, for some people that may seem like a pretty good deal, but he turns her down just like that.
0: What is a Sutphin girl?
1: Sutfin is a surname where I live. Oh. It's, just, it's just a surname. Clark where I live is a, co- I don't mean common in the sense that it's, that I'm devaluing the surname, but it's a surname you see a lot, just like mine, Clark. So Sutphin is a name.
0: I actually looked it up online, (laughs) and I don't know if it's Urban Dictionary I saw. Oh, no. But it had a definition for it. It was the kind of person that would sit around on a recliner on their front lawn. You're kidding me. Yeah, and they they named them essentially what we would call white trash in the South. And Sutphin was that name. You're kidding me. I'm not kidding you.
1: Well, well, it fits, though, at least. But yeah, it I, I worked don't mean really it. There, well. There are people in my community with the last name Sutphin who are really good people, and there, there are people with the last name Sutphin who are pretty marginal. And it's just a name that I picked that would, I think, it's just a common name. Where I, and, and and so you've done all this research, and I look really good, or maybe really <laughs> bad, depending on your perspective.
0: And there was another word that I had heard before because it was in a uh, Clyde Edgerton book, uh, Feist, talking a about— A mountain
1: Feist, a dog. Yeah,
0: yeah my, little little, little yeah, scrappy yeah, dogs. Yeah,
1: yeah, my— it, so Clyde had that in one of his books.
0: Yeah, it was The Bible Salesman. He oh, nice. It. I had to look it up because I had no idea what he was talking about.
1: They're real dogs, and uh, I think they hunt squirrels predominantly.
0: They and, chase squirrels, I believe. And down in North Carolina, they called them F-Y-C-E. That's oh, okay. how they spell
1: it. okay. One of my friends, Alan Black, who's a local lawyer, and one of the characters in the book is sort of a combination of several really good people I know, and he calls them Mountain Feist. I don't know if they're like Lowland Feist and Valley Feist and Flatland Feist. Yeah, <laughs> but he calls it, he says, my Mountain Feist.
0: Another customer comes into the substitution mm. just right after that, older man named Caleb, dressed in a little flashy, red coat, and he doesn't want a sandwich necessarily.
1: And that's where the plot starts. And he's there to try to convince a compromised, vulnerable Kevin Moore to participate in basically an insurance scam. And please don't ask me to walk through how the scam works. (laughs) I tried to do this in another interview. I like to think that when it's written, it's pretty straightforward and understandable. At least I hope it is. And most people seem to understand the scam. I mean, basically what he wants Kevin to do is to admit malpractice. When Kevin really didn't commit malpractice, he wants Kevin to say that I failed to close a land deal, that I failed to act on a a land option. And in the meantime, Caleb, the scammer, has managed to manipulate the marketplace price of a piece of land to make it appear that the failure to close the option cost the option holder, the plaintiff, ultimately $5 million.
0: It echoes back a little bit to plain heathen mischief. There is a disgraced man and yes. he gets sucked into an insurance scam. And uh so I thought that was a nice little echo back to your previous one. Yeah, work.
1: but Kevin's a different guy. And yeah, Kevin's a so. Kevin's a stronger guy, he's a more clever guy, he's not there's not as much brooding, he is more likable, he is a fighter from the drop.
0: Less fishing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Only one fly fishing reference and real quick in in this one. Though a shout out to my fly fishing guide, I think he is in one of the the minor lawsuits that's mentioned. That's his name, Joe Sowerby. But Kevin is is a different guy and and I've been very gratified by that. And it goes back to the conversation we just had about Larry Brown. I think that readers so far and reviewers so far have liked him. And to make this story work and to make that plot arc work and to make the ending work, I'm really proud of the ending. To make that work, you've got to like him up front. And if you don't, it all collapses. But I think he's likable and he's a fighter. And I think that people will come along for the ride and root for him.
0: He has his ethics. And he is in a bad situation. His law license has been suspended and he's got a cocaine charge hanging on him. It has not been entered into the record as a guilty plea. That's yet. right. He's yeah. kind of like on a diversion.
1: That's exactly right. We call it taking it under advisement.
0: So he's kind of doing penance. That's exactly right. he's gone to work at a client's sub shop there and he's given an easy way out. Yeah. He, he dangles money in front of him. Someone to talk to the bar association. Right.
1: The scammers, not only are we going to give you a little bit of money, we're going to cure your problem. We're going to give you what you want most. And what Kevin wants most, he wants to practice law. He loves being a lawyer. He loves the practice of law. And he really, really wants to do that. And that's what Caleb, the scammer, says to him. We'll get some money in your bank account. And all you have to do is simply say, I don't have a really good recollection. Maybe I did make this error. Maybe I did not. And during the time that this all went on, everybody knows that, or allegedly went on, everyone knows that Kevin was struggling with a cocaine addiction and a drinking problem. But not only are we going to give you some money, we are connected enough that what we will do is we will have someone intervene on your behalf and help you get that law license back, and that's what you really want. And that is a tremendous temptation for Kevin, but he's not going to do it. And later on in the book, I will say, when... He is at his absolute bottom. He does say to his friend, Minivan Dan, he says to Dan, you know, heck, maybe I would do this if I thought I wouldn't get caught. You know, I'm so far down, but these guys are scammers and they probably wouldn't follow through anyway. But at the outset, it's mostly principle and a sense that it's not going to work out and he might get caught.
0: And speaking of Minivan Dan, you always have great colorful characters in your book, but Dan really fills the bill on this one.
1: Thanks. He's one of my favorite characters, too. Again, he is loosely, loosely based on one of my really good friends, Chris Duggan, from law school. Duggan never went in the minivan business, and he's called Minivan Dan because after graduating from law school, instead of practicing law immediately, he gets the idea that minivans, that you could soup them up and they would be a real commodity that people would want to buy souped up minivans. And he says, the minivan is to the regular van as the MG or the Porsche is to the Cadillac. And, <laughs> and, and this, is his, this is his project. And of course, it doesn't work. His company called Mini Thunder, customizing minivans and dropping in Jericho transmissions and new suspensions and all the paint jobs, you know, on a Plymouth Voyager, it's not a real success for him. <laughs> Hence the name Minivan Dan.
0: But he married well.
1: His wife runs Nicholson Industrial Roofing, so he has plenty of money. He becomes their in-house counsel, fills that role, does good legal work for them. I don't know if you recall, but in, in one day, Lil Wayne hmm. um,
0: orders what three vans? Order, him?
1: Orders three. One for his video, and the sales explosion starts. <laughs> and and his buddy says to him, "Oh, you sold three. That must triple last year's output."
0: <laughs> Kevin has a, a coworker, Blaine. Blaine is smart, go-getter young man, but he's fallen victim to the runaway inflation and college tuition.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the themes in the book. And, you know, often when we talk about this on your show or other shows or I just talk about this with people, you know, the books seem didactic. And my books aren't. My books are meant to be fun, to, to be entertaining, and, and, and that's why I write books. I think if you invest 25 bucks or 27 bucks, whatever it is, in a hardback – you darn well should be entertained, and you should have a good time. It should be a fun adventure
0: for you. Yeah, it should be teeth pulling. Right. And, <laughs> no, it should be teeth pulling.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And at the end, you feel like you've been beaten up. Yeah. Yeah, you know. So that's why I write the books. But one of the themes at the end, it, it circles back and become, and locks into to the plot resolution, the factual plot resolution, deals with Blaine, and he is working in the sub shop, because, despite his good grades, his scholarships, graduating number one in his class, he is one of three kids, and he has two parents who work, and college is so expensive. I've seen a lot of this myself with my nephews and nieces. It's crazy expensive, and so what he does is he goes to community college for two years while he's working at substitution with Kevin, and he gets those two years in the bank, and that will cut his college bill in half. And more and more kids are doing that. At least where I live, I don't I don't know about here, but the trick is you have to match your subjects at your community college with courses that will transfer and go in the bank and give you credit at the university or the four-year college. And that's not simple. And that's one of the roadblocks that that, that Blaine hits in the book.
0: College I started at in 1987. Tuition was $6,800 there, there back in 1987. Use the CPI calculator to see what the inflation rate of inflation, normal rate of inflation would be. It would be 15600 now, but tuition now is like $34,000.
1: This seems like you know walking to school with no shoes through the snow. Maybe two, three years ago, I was talking to kids about going to law school, and they were talking about affording it and do you want to do this as a career because you get out with all this economic baggage, you have these debts and, and loan payments, it's just difficult. So I said, well, I just don't understand that. When I was in law school, basically with my summer job, I was able to pay my tuition and get a little bit of a start on my books and my rent. Took out some modest loans. My father loaned me money, which, by the way, he collected with interest. And then I went back and looked, and remarkably, the tuition of the University of Virginia, and I graduated in 84, so I was there in the early 80s. It was $800 a semester in-state, $1,600. So you were able to go to school with books, you know, room and board and everything for four or five grand. And now I think it's like $60,000. I, I do not quote me. I don't quote me on that. But it is a jaw-dropping number. As I watch my nieces and nephews go through this, you just wonder, I mean, is that a good, I mean, you're going to get out of James Madison University or, you know, a good school, and you're going to have a four-year degree in something, history, English or something, you're going to owe hundred grand. I mean, what do you do? Is that a good choice? Is that a good vocational choice for you? I'm not sure.
0: Your neighbor, Grisham, wrote a, a book last year called The Rooster Bar. Huh. And it's about a for-profit law school. <laughs> in a <laughs> and, certain
1: sense, aren't they all?
0: <laughs> but it was a very cynically one that was just there to suck up loan dollars.
1: At risk of being more discursive than I already have been. One of the real interesting dilemmas for me to watch, is to watching kids. My niece, Izzy, is an exceptional athlete. She's not a, a D1 athlete, but she is certainly really good. So she had a number of, of offers. And as I understand it, you can't maybe D2 or D3 schools. I, I don't know that you can give an athletic scholarship but it's a de facto athletic scholarship. If you will play volleyball for us or basketball for us, you can basically go for free to some pretty good schools, but not the one she wanted to go to. And what a difficult decision to make when you are 18 years old. You can go and basically go to college for free. And as I explained to her, even if you don't like playing basketball, even if you don't like playing volleyball, three months out of the year, that will be your job. The tuition at that school is forty or $50,000, and you will make more in that that year, then your mama makes working a full time forty hour a week job, or you can go to the school you really want to attend and get out with fifty to a hundred thousand dollars in debt, and you will still have to work, but you'll make same as I did. You know, you, you, you'll bust tables and, and you'll make minimum wage and tips.
0: Had a friend; his daughter did community college because she got a scholarship for softball, <laughs> and so she did that for two years and cut her bill in half.
1: That, that seems like a good choice to me.
0: Right after this meeting with Caleb Opportunity, Kevin goes out back and hears a sound in the, the dumpster out back.
1: Let me ask you, is it cheating to make your protagonist likeable by having him rescue a puppy. Is that cheating? (laughs) You're playing
0: on easy mode, I think, there.
1: (laughs) Nelson the dog is is rescued out of the dumpster, and he becomes the canine sidekick throughout the book. And is truly, it was so much fun to write that. I love dogs. We're on book tour now, my wife and I, Dina. And we have Zelda the dog with us. She's just a hoot. So we we, we love dogs. And, you know, I like to say, I probably like 60% of all the people I meet in, in my life, certainly in the court system. But I like about 99% of dogs, and, and, and Nelson's a great pet.
0: The old saying was, if you want a friend in Washington, D.C., get a dog. <laughs> For someone who's under,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, under yeah. some felony charges, get a dog.
1: <laughs> yeah, and he gets Nelson as a puppy, rescues him from the dumpster. He lives there at substitution until Kevin is able to take him to his home, and he's given a place in Meadow Virginia. We call it where I live, the mountain or up top. And he is staying at a, um, a cousin's home, having separated from his wife with a divorce pending. As Larry Brown said, load him up with troubles. So he has lost his law license. He is a recovering cocaine and addict and an alcoholic. He's trying to make a living. He's trying to raise a puppy. He has really nowhere to live, and he is separated from his wife. And early on in the book, she calls and says, I've tried, but it's time for the divorce, and the papers are headed your way. So at that point, pretty much his puppy is about the only friend on the planet he has other than Minnie Van Dan.
0: And Blaine. And Blaine. Who calls him Lawyer Kevin.
1: He does. It's tongue-in-cheek. He also calls him Lord Mansfield, all <laughs> kinds of other things like that. I have had more reader feedback. Maybe it's just because of the time that, w- or the, that we live in with, with email, Goodreads, Facebook. So I had a really thoughtful, long email today from a reader, and I've forgotten her name. And she said, I've practiced domestic law for 36 years. I love the book. I love its accuracy. I love the ending. I really enjoyed it. But let me ask you something. Quote, does, does this give you pause? End quote. Would, given a rock-solid, I've forgotten, 14-, 15-, 16-year marriage, Would a spouse leave another spouse because of basically three months of cocaine abuse, alcohol abuse, and lying about that, and one single mistake? And as a sitting judge, I have seen that case. You don't see it much, but maybe in 28 years, I saw that three or four times where one spouse says, I just can't trust you anymore, and I can't be in a marriage where I have to look over my shoulder, and that one breach of trust— And it had several components. It's so significant that I'm just not ever going to be able to get over it. Uh, I mean, what do you think?
0: Well, I remember John Irving said once that extraordinary things should happen in books. That's what they should be about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I've actually seen it happen. But it was interesting that this matrimonial attorney and also one of my early readers said, you know, I would – he seems like a good guy and he's trying to do the right thing. I'm not sure I would kick him to the curb, especially – One time and he is doing everything possible to make it right.
0: But his penance seemed a little over the top going to work in a sandwich shop.
1: Well, actually, what else is he going to do? Because his wife says that to him. His wife says just that. This seems a little dramatic and it seems a little too much like Kevin the Martyr. But he says in the book, and this is true, and this I know, what are you going to do? What job are you going to get? With a pending felony charge, where are you going to work? And you've got to work, especially if you want to get your law license back. You need to be productive, not just sitting around. He needs some income. So you're not going to work in a bank. You're not going to work in a school. You're not going to work in the insurance business. You're not going to work in a car business. You can't get a job at Walmart with a pending felony. What else could you do? And maybe he could get a little better job in a bigger city, but then you got the cost of living. So that is one thing that I have always, as both a writer and a judge, and somebody's involved in the legal system, felt comfortable about, and that really imprinted on me a- as a judge, watching folks that would even pending charges, misdemeanor charges, who owe restitution, and they come into court, and it's like, well, what judge do you want me to do? Where am I going to get a gig? What am I going to do? So. He said, and I won't quote this directly from the book, but he said the F beside my name stands for basically fast food because that's the only job I'm going to get other than construction. And I chose fast food because I don't I don't want to work in the wicked heat.
0: But in the sense of his relationship with his estranged wife and that he does this, he gives her oh, very generous in the settlement and everything like that. He's essentially taken away her right to be angry at him because he's been so generous. And because of that, she's more sad than anything else, it seems. But also, she should be able to have that righteous anger, and he's taken that away from her.
1: It is really cool that you would say that. I, as both a lawyer and a judge, I have said one of the most frustrating things that I have watched in court, not frustrating for me, but one of the most anger-inducing things I have seen is a spouse— come into court, or a mediation, and say, you know what? Just take it. You can have it all. Just take everything. It negates the anger, and most importantly, it is almost like saying, whatever I got, it's worth it to be rid of you. And this is a cousin to that, and I understand what you're saying. You're sort of the first person who said that. But that's a fair point. At some point, it's probably cathartic and good to get angry and and get it out. And she really never gets that chance because he's very fair. And at one point he says to her, hey, come on, I'm being vilified. I'm the only guy in the world who's being vilified for giving too much in a settlement. But I want to do that to make it right because I made the mistake and I owe it to you.
0: But that hair shirt can be very irritating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And, And so she tells him, she tells him that.
0: One of the cruxes of the scam is that this potential client comes in, wants to investigate an option on buying some property, and she contends that she told him to go ahead and execute the option, and she did not do so. She did not do so. Is there any way a lawyer can protect himself from a situation like that?
1: I've never thought about that. Not really, but I, I think that most lawyers, you would have file notes, but not really. Much of what we do as lawyers is confidential. It's just its just Stephen and Martin talking in my office. So what, what are you going to do? I mean, it's sometimes it's a swearing contest. But his position is, is made worse because at the time this happened, he was using drugs and, and drinking too much and distracted. And one of the things that he says... And one of the themes in the book is that once you're compromised in the legal system, especially for drugs, then the good folks at the Rotary Club are never going to quite trust you the same way. And so that makes him a pretty easy target. Ironic, of course, that he is a lawyer now on that side of the equation.
0: And his friend and lawyer, Ward, gets very upset with him over Uh, some of the things that happen and that might paint them in in a poor light.
1: You know, we talked a little bit about the literary beginning of this book, the, the Genesis, the sort of Larry Brown character development. But most of my books come from my, my day job, or, or the germ comes, the, the, the tiny little Genesis. And this book got its start when I did a jury trial. Patrick County has 18,000, 20,000 people, something like that. It's very mountainous. It's very conservative. I say that not in a bad way. But jurors are very skeptical, hard to convince of guilt. But by gosh, once they're convinced, they're going to light you up. And so you don't want to go in front of a Patrick County jury if you're guilty. And I tried a case, a wicked bad child molestation case. A stepfather was accused of molesting his 10-year-old stepson. And he pled not guilty in front of a Patrick County jury. He confessed. It was on tape. It wasn't a Q&A. Frequently, it's just written down. and The officer reads it back. So the jury heard him on tape with his voice breaking, weeping, crying, and confessing his own voice. The Commonwealth case was a perfect laydown legally. It was just intact. And I'm scratching my head. I'm thinking, what in the world is this guy doing? He gets on the stand, testifies on his own behalf. He gets a couple of preliminary questions. Lawyer asking the money question. He says, well, Mr. Lester, you've pled not guilty. Tell this jury. They just heard the confession on tape. Why did you confess if you didn't commit this crime? He looks the jury straight in the eye, and he said, I love my stepson, and I knew that he had spoken to the police, and I knew that he told the police that I'd done these awful acts. And I was so worried about him, and I was concerned that if I did not accept responsibility for this and give a false confession, he would be charged with making a false statement to the police. (laughs) (laughs) And almost in unison, the jury, 12 jurors, turned, and and, in Patrick County, I'm behind them sitting on the bench, and looked at me as if to say, stop the lying. (laughs) This is just a Byzantine, terrible lie. They stayed out as a jury about 15 minutes, found him guilty. They gave him, by my math, about an extra year for lying and about an extra year for wasting their Tuesday afternoon with that nonsense. But after that, my new administrative assistant said to me, that was a crazy story and nobody believed it. But there will come a time, wouldn't you think, if you're here long enough, that the crazy story that somebody is telling you that checks every wrong box might just be true and how will you ever know? And Ward Armstrong, in this novel, is a great lawyer. He's a real person, by the way. He's a great lawyer, and he sees every single signpost for lying. Every box is checked. Everything that Kevin, his client, is telling him sounds guilty, sounds like an excuse, and sounds untrue. But it isn't. And Kevin, and part of the tension in the book as a lawyer, Kevin, as he walks through this this minefield— in all these difficulties, realizes that all his excuses seem flimsy. And Ward, as any lawyer would do, when your client comes in and says, hey, I'm being set up by probation, hey, I really didn't do this, becomes angry with him.
0: Over the years, you said you like to use real names in the books. I think you mentioned once before that Ron Weiss was one of your favorite probation officers. He is, yeah. And that he's only mentioned here. We don't ever get to meet him, but he's an important part of the story.
1: Yeah, he's a good probation officer. One of the fun things, and there's a reason for doing this. If, if I write these books about the legal system and I live in a close-knit small region, I use real names. I use the judges' names. I, I have never written anything in one of my novels that would be rude, unpleasant, mean-spirited about a real person. I never have. If you are in my book, it's, you're somebody I like. And the reason I do that, it's kind of fun. It's a nice wink to the local people. But also, if you're in Virginia or certainly in Southside, Virginia, and you're reading the narrative and you come to a spot and it says, and he went before judge and it's not the real judge and you know who the judge is and you know who the Commonwealth attorney is and you know who the sheriff is, I believe it's very jarring and it just throws you right out of the narrative. It won't matter to someone reading it in Memphis The names are just the names. You're you're not going to know Ron Weiss from David Williams from Sheriff Smith. You're not going to know any of those people. They're just names. Interestingly enough, the name Ward Armstrong almost seems made up. It seems almost fanciful, but he's a real person. However, if you're a local reader and, and you're reading this narrative and it's just some made up name or made up street or made up place, I just think it really defeats. It takes you out of the whole fiction arc.
0: On a really silly side note, because his name was Ward and South Boston was mentioned in there, I thought of Ward Burton, the the race car driver. <laughs> oh, of course, Ward Burton.
1: Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> you, I was going to do it. You beat me to Ward Burton. Um, and, and um he. What was the uh, the Saint Dale book that Sharon McCrum wrote?
0: I'm, I didn't read that one.
1: It's a cool book. It's the Canterbury Tales told with a NASCAR filter. It is a real genius book, and Sharon wrote that. And she and, and Button toured a little bit together. Oh, really? Yeah, you know he won the Daytona five hundred. Yeah, um, that's
0: one of his only wins. I think one believe. of his
1: only wins, and his brother Jeff still does NASCAR commentary.
0: Yeah, yeah Jeff was. Even a better racer than, than Ward was.
1: I'm not sure I would say he was a better driver. He has more wins. I'll, okay. I'll leave it at that. That's diplomatic.
0: Yeah, but he didn't have that unique accent. He, do, he does
1: not. He, he Ward is sui generis.
0: And I remember he was like a, a sportsman, sportman. He just loved yes, to that's hunt right. fish. He was just yeah. really about the outdoors.
1: And he left the sport, you know, Carl Edwards left recently, maybe two or three years ago, right at the late 30s and driving well. And Ward sort of just was out of the sport and is maybe late 30s. I'm not sure why. I haven't heard much out of either, was either one. Was Carl
0: because of concussions?
1: I don't think so. Uh, maybe he just figured he'd made enough money and, and was ready to go. I, I don't know, but he just retired. But uh, Certainly, he could catch on. I think he had some time left on his contract. He just wanted out of the business. Uh, worked hard to get in it. Good driver, very popular pitch man, and then just quit.
0: Well, I remember Dell Jarrett back in the day. He had talked about his Ford Credit, Ford Quality Career, Ford Thunderbird. <laughs>
1: A real quick story. I grew up next door. Everybody in Patrick County claims Ken, some sort of uh, connection to the Wood Brothers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I grew up literally next door to Leonard and Betty Mae Wood. Leonard is a Hall of Fame NASCAR mechanic, just a wonderful neighbor and a great guy. But when I was trying to sort of break through with my first book, all the Wood Brothers wrote a letter for me, and we sent a bunch of the wives from the race team to the John Boy and Billy Big Show in Charlotte syndicate <laughs> with some biscuits and a letter from the Wood Brothers. I mean, you do whatever you can to get your name out there, and it and it worked. So subsequently, if you'll look in the acknowledgments, every book I've written, I'm probably the only Knopf author who is acknowledging Wood Brothers Racing, number 21. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You never sent me any
1: biscuits. (laughs) (laughs) Next time. All righty. I'll get all the racing wives. We'll give you some biscuits, and I'll get a letter from from Eddie, Lynn, and and Leonard.
0: You talk about you only put people you like in the books. So I'm guessing you don't know anyone named Eddie Flanagan.
1: Oh, well, that's not true. So, again, you know, (laughs) cross-examination. Ed Flanagan is one of my best friends in the world, and he's the wicked probation officer and an absolute chump and a loser, and Flanagan is one of my best friends, but he gets it. It's fun for him, and because I'm a lawyer, I have an email with his consent. He read the manuscript, so he knows, and he thinks it's a hoot being the villain in the book, yeah.
0: It points out to more vulnerabilities in the system.
1: One of the things that was really interesting to me with this book is the day that it was published, which was July 9, the New York Times did a review and it was a great review and it was Alifair Burke wrote the review. And it was very gratifying to me because not only she's a great writer, she's a law professor and she's a real lawyer. And she loved the book and said it was a, quote, great legal thriller and that it had a a marvelous ending. I don't know how that sort of thing works, but the headline referred to the corkscrew twist and turns in a dark, dark legal thriller. And I've never thought that the book is in any way dark. It has a fair amount of levity. Uh, I think people laugh out loud from time to time. I'm someone who can tell you where the trap doors are in and, and the legal system, and I, I, and I can tell you about the flaws. But I'm a fan. I'm an advocate for the system. I, I think the system works most of the time. And that was a head-scratcher for me. And I've been asked several times by readers, by, by folks at signings, you know, you have a pretty dim view of the system, and, and I don't. I mean I worked in that system for 28 years, and I think 99 percent of the time, let's say, we get it right. But there certainly are problems with any system, and, and if you're there for 28 years and you see it day in and day out, you can highlight those and, you know, and certainly tell people about them. And certainly one of the problems you will have is that if you have been through the system and, – and I don't know about Tennessee law – but if you've been through the system in Virginia and you're convicted of a felony – or a crime involving lying, cheating, or stealing, when you're sitting in front of a jury, the jury knows that. They are told by the judge, I will tell them that, you know, Mr. Clark has been convicted of a felony, and you don't consider that as evidence of his guilt or innocence, but you sure can consider it as evidence of his truthfulness and weighing his credibility. So, and if you're on probation, your rights shrink even more in terms of what choices you have, what safeguards you have, and what procedural and evidentiary safeguards you have when you come into court.
0: You talked about Larry Brown and loading people up with troubles and problems. This isn't the end for Kevin because one morning he goes down, and he goes down hard.
1: Yeah, you know, write what you know, right, Stephen? So I had done about 90 pages of this book. His problem was going to be a heart attack, and I'd started interviewing and doing the research with all my friends who were docs, and about heart attack, the symptoms, the recovery, sort of the, the time, how, long, how do you get better, what are the restrictions, how does this work? Uh, about 80 or 90 pages, and one day I'm just sitting at my house, December thirtieth, 2015, and I have a stroke. Uh, I mean, just a knockdown, vicious stroke myself. And I almost died. At the risk of sounding vainglorious and quoting my own line out of the book, Brushing against ruin does not make you any smarter, brighter, more appreciative, or a deeper person, despite what college theology professors or and, Nietzsche said. And, and 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 Greek tragic poets would have you believe. But it it certainly gave me a real interesting perspective on the insurance system in our country, uh, the medical system in our country, and how we can be blindsided by physical failings. I am a healthy person. I do not smoke. I don't have plaque buildup. I, I suffered what is known as a fluke stroke. Kevin's medical condition in the book does not parallel mine. Mine was much worse. Yeah, I sound like every patient. Yeah, <laughs> my, I sound like your grandmother. Yeah, Mine was worse. Mine was terrible. But mine was terrible, and, and I didn't have the, the same sort of quick recovery that he did. But I certainly have a sense I'm really qualified to write about all the aspects of the medical system, illness and, and recovery, how that factors into you being able to work, pay your bills, the insurance industry, because I, I live that. I don't recommend that if, if you're an aspiring writer. I don't recommend that, <laughs> that <laughs> route as a way to, to write what you know, but that's what happened.
0: And it has thrown Kevin for a loop, too. He's in his early 40s. Yep. And what little sense of kind of personal agency he had that kind of took that along with it.
1: So the troubles keep coming. I had another email from a reader, and again, I wish I could remember her name. And she said, read all your books, and I'm a fan. I'm about a third of the way through this book, and I'm stopping. I know that it's going to work out because I've read the reviews. and I know that it's going to have a cool – unpredictable, sort of happy ending. But I just can't struggle with this. It just It's so heartbreaking to see this guy. And I said, well, I'm pleased that you're that much invested in him, that I've done a good enough job of creating a character that you're so invested that it's painful for you to continue on because you like him. And I said, I promise you that if you stick with him and get to the end, it will be a happy ending. I like happy endings, or at least a semi happy ending. And she wrote me back, she says, I'm plowing ahead. I'm gonna keep going. So yeah, that's just one more that's one more trouble on his pile. And that's a big trouble.
0: Definitely a more lighthearted note. What are Walks and Gomers?
1: <laughs> Let me see if I can remember. Uh, let's see. Walks is uh, whining old Caucasian kooks. Uh, gomers are grumpy Uh, grumpy old... Aggrieved. Aggrieved men. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Someone suggested that I had, quote, written myself into the book, end quote. (laughs) But we have, in that scene, two men come into the store dressed in Confederate uniforms, open carrying with the Confederate flags in the truck bed. And I've had a number of people ask me, are those real websites? And Blaine is excited. And, And he runs to Kevin and he says... Man, this is perfect. This is a perfect score. And Blaine is taking pictures of the men in their uniforms and their trucks. And Kevin says, well, what in the world are you talking about? And he says, well, it's, it's a website that, that I'm aware of. It's called Walks and Gomers, grumpy old aggrieved men and whining old Caucasian kooks. And the perfect score would be 1860. <laughs> it's a fun little aside, and it, and it actually fit with the narrative to make a point in the bigger plot, the bigger story.
0: You don't have a plot that is so clockwork that everything has to have ultimate import in it, that you let the story breathe, and it has a little bit more of a naturalistic feel because not everything is just serving the TikTok.
1: Genevieve Neerman, who is one of my first readers at Knopf, said, This book is Ocean's Eleven crossed with Breaking Bad, crossed with a little bit of Perry Mason. And that's really what I wanted to do in this book. Is it M. Night Shyamalan? Is that how you say it? Uh, Shyamalan. Yeah. Signs, or Ocean's Eleven, or Usual Suspects, all the way through. And you can't cheat as a writer when you do this and just crank the deus ex machina at the end. But all the way through this book, I'm going to give you the clues. I'm going to tell you the ending, and it's going to be right in front of you. Now, some of the stuff is fun distraction. They're just riffs about all kinds of things. But some of the stuff is important, starting with, as, as you and I started, the title of the book, The Substitution Order. So all the way through, I, I'm going to show you these things that may seem like inconsequential riffs or something the editor should have cut, or it may be very important, and I just think that's a really, really cool framework and it's always been those movies have always been a lot of fun for me, but I like to think I never cheat, I never just crank things in, or it is the ending is in plain sight from the very beginning in this book
0: but in writing a first person narration, and then the narrator has to withhold things from the reader for there to be some delight and surprise later on in the book. Did you find that a challenge to do that?
1: The way you have to make that work is he also had to withhold those things from the people he's dealing with in the book. And as long as you have that legitimacy, it works. If you and I are planning a caper or we're going to do something or you're my lawyer and I'm withholding something and, and it's part of the story and it makes sense that I wouldn't tell you, then I don't think a reader feels cheated. So I don't think that's real hard. Part of his plan, he does mislead people to get where he's going ultimately.
0: I would ask how the retired life is treating you, but you pretty much went on tour as soon as you retired. (laughs) So what do you imagine your retirement is going to look like?
1: I am completely 100% retired. A lot of judges in Virginia do um, recall, do substitute work. A lot of judges, it's a pretty lucrative gig, do mediation. I'm going to do none of it. I am completely retired. I do not want to be that... Man or woman, I experienced as a, a a lawyer, and even as a judge, and I touch on this in the book. There are a lot of judges who just hold onto the gig too long because they just love being a judge. And you love the attention, the trappings, the influence. But they don't want to put into work. And when I was a young lawyer, you'd get an 80-year-old judge, and he or she would come into court and picked up a law book in 10 years. And they were grumpy and did not like to be challenged. For me, the law has never been intuitive. I'm, I'm a learned lawyer, and I have to keep up. I have to read advance sheets. I have to go to the seminars. I have to stay up to date. And I just don't want to do that anymore. And if I do not do that, then I will become obsolete and embarrass myself. I I like to say that I don't want to be Willie Mays playing in a Mets uniform and dropping fly balls. I don't want to be Joe Namath in a Rams uniform bench for Vince Ferragamo. So um, I'm through with all things legal, and I now have just one full-time job. My wife, Zelda the Dog, and I, and uh, we've been on book tour since July 9, basically. And maybe I'll wake up in October or November with the sugar rush gone. This book in the rearview mirror a little bit, at least the travel part of it, and say, "Gee, I need something to do." But I really, <laughs> I really don't think so. I did twenty eight years. That's enough.
0: Are you going to go to Bouchercon or any mystery type of conventions?
1: Not that I know. I my uh, I'm leaving here headed to uh, Nashville and then some more local stuff then we're headed out to Jackson Hole I'm doing a keynote for their bar out there and looking forward to that then back to Missoula and as far as I know that's pretty much it
0: and so some fly fishing I'm
1: guessing you got it 3 days in Missoula on uh, the Bitterroot and and maybe a little on the Clark Fork
0: Well Martin I'm so happy that I don't have to call you your honor anymore <laughs>
1: You never have to begin with. (laughs) Yes, I did.
0: I did some cheesy introductions before.
1: (laughs) But thanks for having me back. It's always fun, always great. I appreciate, um, as I noted in the stuff I I sent out, from it. it's always fun. I always enjoy talking to you about the book.
0: Thanks so much. Martin Clark is the author of the novel The Substitution Order, which is published by Knopf. I'm Stephen Essary, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.